Robertson, in his book, Magnificent Obsession, uh, writes of a reality TV program, uh, a kind of parent swap in which two teenagers from England who were sort of drunken, sexually promiscuous, they were rude and ignorant youths, and they came to live with an, Af an African-American Baptist pastor and his wife in Atlanta. And of course, they were looking to record a, a train crash. And it was, of course, quite a moving and fascinating program as they struggled to understand each other's cultures, come to terms with their common humanity in this, this clash. And uh, as the documentary finished, the, the voice of the, of, of the one who was producing the program asked one of the young men as he was heading to the airport after this time in Atlanta what he had made of the whole event. And one of the young men said this, these people are all right. They're really into this Jesus bloke, aren't they? Jesus, he seems all right. Where can I find Jesus in England? Is he in the yellow pages? And David was just struck with the poignancy of that. So many people absolutely clueless about Jesus. And I wonder today, does God seem remote to you? Perhaps you've only just started coming along here to uh, Charlotte Chapel and you're intrigued. You see there's something going on here. You hear stories of God being at work in people's lives. You, and you're wondering, why are these people so into Jesus? All this talk seems very strange and remote. And it'll really help us this morning to have our Bibles back open to that passage that was read a moment ago from Isaiah chapter 65, and you'll find that on page 752 in the church Bibles. Page 752, Isaiah chapter 65. Last week, Liam did a beautiful job of uh, preaching on chapters 63 and 64. It's a section where we hear the earnest prayer of this prophet, Isaiah, who lived over 700 years before Jesus came. And he was longing for God to respond and intervene in the mess that he saw all around him at that time. And you can see, just look at the beginning of the first verse of chapter 64 on the same page there. This heart longing for God to act. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Isaiah was depressed as he saw the spiritual state of the nation. It was so far from the glory of what God's kingdom should be like. God's name was not being honored. God's word was being ignored. And he could see the impact of a rebellious culture descending into a cursed darkness. He could see what was going to happen in the future he could see where it was all heading, a day when Jerusalem would become a wasteland, when the, the temple would be destroyed by fire, or everything that would be treasured would be taken away. And of course, that's exactly what did take place. And look at how the chapter ends in verse 12 of chapter 64. It ends with this question, After all this, Lord, will you hold yourself back? Will you keep silent and punish us beyond measure? Everything just seemed to be a mess. And it appeared as if God was disinterested. Heaven appeared silent. 
And that's where chapters 65 and 66 break in. It ends this book of Isaiah to tell us that this is definitely not the case. Here is God's answer to the call of his servant. And what we find is not that God is reluctant. It's not that God is holding back. It is not that God is hard to find. But in fact, God is eager to be found by people, even by those who aren't even looking for him or longing for him. Chapter 65 begins and ends with this vision of God as the eager God who is keen to be found. The God who calls out, here am I. And as I read various commentaries, the, the outline I really loved was by Ray Ortland Jr. So I'm borrowing that this morning. If we could just put the points up on the screen. And you can see that the section begins and ends with the eagerness of God. And we see how the pleading God is offended. And we see the creating God rejoicing. And in the center of it, we see the importance of an authentic relationship with God. See, Isaiah, as he closes this magnificent book, I can't believe they're coming to the end of it. He doesn't want us to end with despairing thoughts. He wants to replace those with a deep confidence based on an eager God who is always at work in the world, always eager to intervene in the lives of people. And, that, and that's why we're studying this book today, because this is the same God that we're dealing with today. He is eager to intervene in your life, in my life today. So let's look at the eagerness of God now. Verse 1 of chapter 65. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. Do you see how eager God is to reveal himself? See, to the question at the end of chapter 64, um, will you remain silent? We hear the reply of uh, verse 1 of 65, here am I, here am I. God is not hiding from us. It was his idea to reveal himself, even to those who didn't ask for him. And he's able to bring about the outcome that people who are not even seeking him will actually find him. This is a God who desires to be known to the nations through his word. I said, this is a speaking God, a God who can be found in his words. I said, here am I, here am I. It's almost a little bit embarrassing how eager God appears to want to be known. In fact, he's willing to humiliate himself to get our attention. That's what Christmas is about. To that prayer, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, is answered at Christmas. It's answered in the incarnation. God did rend the heavens. He did come down as a baby that was given the name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Here is Emmanuel, God with us. To the anguish and the pain of scandal came the savior of the human race. We're going to sing as we close our service this morning. And the New Testament tells us that 
as we preach and share this gospel of Jesus Christ, the voice of Jesus himself comes through us to people. Do you know, this is how God introduces himself to people today. As we speak the gospel, we can personally know and relate to the living God by listening and responding to God's words, to God's good news about his son Jesus. And we as Charlotte Chapel, we exist in Edinburgh to be like ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Through our lives, through our lips, through our church and others like it in this city, God is saying to the city of Edinburgh, here am I. Here am I. God is ready to meet us. God is ready to meet you. You see, the problem is not on God's side. As we look at the verses 2 to 7, we'll see that uh, that's not the issue. Look at verse 2. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. Now look at the body language of God here. The problem's not on God's part, is it? He's not sullen and sullen. His arms aren't crossed with his back turned from us. God is pleading with his people. He's holding out his hands. He is incessantly pleading all day long. He's holding out his hands. The problem is with people who obstinately refuse to listen to him. Their wills are set against God because in their minds they, they've decided to push the God who's revealed himself away from their thoughts. Instead, they're pursuing their own imaginary ideas about God, about spirituality, life, the universe, and everything. And this imaginary world view is just leading them down paths that are not good at all. <clears throat> now, there's a tragic irony here uh, that keeps playing itself out. That those who knew most about God and received the most revelation about God were the most obstinate and rebellious. While those from other nations who, who didn't receive uh, all these advantages of knowing all these things would be more open to responding to the good news about Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul is um, agonizing over in, in the letter that he writes to the, to the church in Rome. And, and Lord willing, next year we're going to study this book of Romans. And, and as you get to chapter 10, he's agonizing about how comparatively few Jewish people accepted Jesus as their Messiah compared to the Gentile nations who were gladly accepting and trusting him. It's not an issue of a lack of information. The Old Testament scriptures are, are full of, of promises that were completely fulfilled by Jesus. The issue is about spiritual obstinacy. Rebellion. Here's the perversity of our human nature. We tend to despise what is familiar to us. 
I think that we've had some generations in the past who think they thought they knew about Christianity and wrote it off. But we're getting a new generation coming up who are clueless. And yet when they hear the good news about Jesus, they're saying, this is amazing. I want in on this. This is exactly what I need. And I want to say to the young people who've grown up in Christian families in this church, beware this danger that we tend to despise what is familiar to us. Don't be obstinate and rebellious against your parents and what they've shared with you. Don't despise what was explained simply to you because they did it just to, so that you'd understand. It is not a childish thing, this Christian faith. This glorious God is worthy of your deepest thoughts and your wholehearted obedience. Ask your tough questions. Think your deep thoughts. He's more than able to deal with them. But do not harden your hearts because this is so familiar to you. There is nothing more glorious than this God who has revealed himself to us in Jesus. And he's eager to be in a genuine relationship with you. He's holding out his hands to you. Come near him through the gospel of Jesus. You know, for everyone this morning, I want to say, please notice that God is not impressed by hazy spirituality and, and merely being religious. Uh, we live in a culture that seems to think that it doesn't matter what you believe about God. All views are fine and acceptable. If God is there, he or she or it isn't bothered as long as you are sincere. As long as you're a decent person. Find a spirituality that kind of works for you. That gives you warm feelings and, and connects you with a numinous sense of, of transcendence. I mean, nobody wants to be called religious today, but lots of people say, yeah, well, I'm a deeply spiritual person. This is a profound thing to say. I'm deeply spiritual. But be warned that God, the God who is actually there, is not impressed with such things. Look, look again at verse 3. A people who continually provoke me. These are the obstinate people. A people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick. Now under the old covenant, uh, they were only to offer sacrifices in the temple and on the stone altar, the authorized altar. Uh, but these people are going out to their gardens, offering sacrifices on brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigils. They're, they're pursuing all sorts of strange occultic uh, behavior. Uh, who eat the flesh of pigs. Of course, under the Old Covenant, uh, you weren't allowed to eat uh, pork. Uh, under the New Covenant, we're going to enjoy ham this afternoon, so don't worry about that. But under their covenant, uh, it, was, it was wrong for them to eat the flesh of pigs, whose pots hold broth of impure meat. Do you see the point here? What Isaiah sees in his day is that people are kind of bit bored with the way God's actually revealed that he would like to be approached and worshipped. And they're exploring all these other forms of spirituality and religion and, uh, and their own imaginations of how they think that you can approach God. Oh, gardens are nice. Let's go in a garden. The people didn't want to approach God on his terms. They, they wanted to dabble with strange rites and pagan views. How does God view this? 
they are constantly provoking God by their behavior. Do you see that being sort of just religious and, and pursuing spirituality and, and just being sort of really super creative in your worship services and doing whatever you fancy doing because you think it would be interesting, that is deeply offensive to God. Verse 5. These people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day. Now, I don't know whether you've stood next to a, a big open fire outside recently and the wind blows the smoke in your face. How does that feel? Not very good. It's very irritating. You start crying and it goes up your nose and you want to you kind of get away from it. Well, that's how God feels about DIY spirituality. It offends him. It repels him. And this is what's so extraordinary. This is repellent, and yet, as they engage in this spirituality and this weird stuff all day, guess what he's doing all day? He's holding out his hands, pleading with them to return to him. What grace! When we provoke him with our sin and our foolishness, what grace! This is the father who longs for the prodigal son and daughter to return for home. The father who is eager to throw his arms around them in warm embrace. His arms are open, ready to hug. And as we come to this next section, do you see the importance of, of authenticity to God? Look at verse 8. This is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes and people say, don't destroy it, there's still a blessing in it. So will I do on behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. The picture here is of a farmer who's harvesting grapes. He's cutting down a cluster. And as he looks at this cluster, some of the grapes are bad grapes. There are a few good ones amongst, amongst them. He doesn't simply throw it all away because he knows he can discriminate between them. You see, today in the world, God sees all the religious people going to church. And he knows who are authentically his people and those who are spiritually artificial. God sees. God knows our hearts. He knows everything about us. But there is a harvest day coming when the true and the false will be separated forever. That's what these verses say. Look at verse 9. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah. Those who will possess my mountains, my chosen people will inherit them. And there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks in the valley of Achor. That is from east to west. Uh, that will become a resting place for herds for my people who seek me. Verse 11. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, I will destine you for the sword, and all of you will fall in the slaughter. For I called, but you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Now, what is the difference between those that God will accept and, and those that God will reject? Well, quite simply, it is the difference between having Jesus and not having him. That's what we've been learning through this whole book. 
of Isaiah. God is saving his people from their sins through his Messiah King. Isaiah prophesied of this one coming as a servant, willing to suffer and die to secure the salvation of all those who trust him. That's the message of Isaiah as a whole. And how can we assess who is authentically trusting Christ and those who are not? How do we know who's authentic, who's artificial? Well, you can see it by how people respond and listen to God's word. It is seen in those who are willing to humbly take God at his word, looking to trust and depend upon his son, Jesus. As verses 9 to 10 says, God's chosen ones are seen by those who seek him who seek him in the way that he's revealed himself. Now, they're the ones who will inherit this eternal life of fellowship with God. This language of possessing my holy mountain, if you go from the beginning of Isaiah, the holy mountain is the the place where there's going to be this magnificent banquet with the richest foods and the best wines, and, and, and on that mountain, death will be swallowed up and be no more. This is the holy mountain. This is a picture, really, of fellowship with God and of eternal life. It is those who seek him who will possess my holy mountain. While those who forsake the Lord, verse 11, interestingly, they don't forsake religion. They instead choose superstition. And this is what we see all around us in Britain today, isn't it? Uh, People have not stopped being religious. They're just weirdly superstitious. They talk about luck and fortune and destiny. They reveal their rejection by completely ignoring what God has to say. They they have no interest in what the Bible has to say. And they choose evil paths that displease God. And the future for people who continue their lives in that way is to get exactly what they want. They say, I want nothing to do with you, God. And then God says, okay, eternally you will have nothing to do with me. God will justly and fully pay back into their laps the sins that they have committed. And today in 21st century Britain, it doesn't seem to uh, make much difference, really. As you look out there, you can't really tell who um, is authentically part of the people of God, who are not. There doesn't seem to make much difference. But this chapter finishes by focusing us on how eternally different this will, will be. Look at verse 13. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. My friends, God can discriminate between the authentic and the artificial. And there's a day coming when the difference will be obvious to all. It is the difference between heaven and hell. What is heaven like? Well, it's like eating, drinking, rejoicing, 
singing for joy. What is hell like? It is hunger. It's thirst. It is shame. It is crying out in pain. It is wailing in the brokenness of spirit. Where are you heading? Are we heaven bound? Or hell bound? Where are you heading? People will want to say, well, it doesn't matter how you worship God. It doesn't matter if you pay attention to God or what he's revealed about himself in Jesus. As long as you're sincere, as long as you're good. Do you see from this part of the Bible that that is not true? Can you understand how offensive it is to God who at great cost sent his one and only son into the world to save us through the humiliation of death upon a cross, bearing the judgment for our sins, for us to simply turn around and say to God, well, I didn't think it was that important, this Jesus stuff. I thought I would do it my way. Can you see that's like smoke up his nostrils? It is deeply and profoundly offensive. And I must warn you today that how you respond to Jesus makes all the difference in the world, both now, but especially for all eternity. And I want you to see, I want you to ache for the joy of what's ahead. Look at the future that God is promising for his chosen people who respond to the gospel of grace, to this gospel of salvation through Jesus. The creating God is rejoicing over what is to come. Look at verse 17. See, I will create new heavens and, and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. So glorious and beautiful is this world to come. It will have a vague sense, oh yeah, there was a past, but I don't remember much about it. Because what in front of you is so glorious. And all the pain and, and the hurt of the past, it'll not come back to your mind. The deep regrets over the past mistakes you've made, they'll not come to your mind. You'll be in the new heavens and the new earth. And we've got here some beautiful word pictures of heaven, of what eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth will be like. God is going to bring about this new creation. It's going to be utterly glorious. And instead of God declaring, as he did at the first time he created, that it was very good, uh, that looks like very pale uh, comment when you see what we have here. Verse 19, I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. What's he going to say about the new creation? He's going to be singing for joy. He's going to be delighting in all that he's bringing about. Now, Isaiah in this little section is taking up ideas and concepts that would have been understood by the, the people he was writing to, to try to help them understand and comprehend something that really is beyond our comprehension. Uh, so, for instance, there, there, there's quite clearly no death in heaven, but we have death spoken of here. The, the one who dies at 100 will be considered a mere child. Well, that's clearly metaphorical language to help us grasp something that we struggle to imagine. A bit like trying to explain to a baby fetus what life beyond the womb is going to be like. It's going to be tricky, isn't it? 
The fetus isn't going to grasp the fullness of life as it's in the womb. And here's God giving us word pictures to try and help us begin to comprehend something that actually we can't get our imaginations around it. And uh, if you're feeling discouraged, spend some time this week meditating on these different images. I haven't got time to deal with it all, but what, what's it going to be like? Well, it's like eternal provision, as we've already discovered, like eating and drinking. It's internal satisfaction, gladness and joy. It's fullness of life. You know, living to 100 in a time when life expectancy would have been around 50. It's eternal security, dwelling safely in your home. It involves rewarding work, planting vineyards and enjoying the, the fruit of them. It's going to mean fellowship with God, a people forever blessed by God. And the chapter ends with this picture of the closest of relationships between God and his people in verse 24 and 25. Look at verse 24. Before they call, I will answer, God says. While they're still speaking, I will hear. And the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Notice it's not the wolf will feed on the lamb. That's what we got now. It's the wolf and the lamb will feed together. Old enmity will be gone. There'll be brand new natures. The lion will eat straw. Natures will be changed. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Well, the dust, the dust will be the serpent's food tells you that the, the curse of, of the serpent is gone forever. And they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountains. See, there'll be nothing that can damage, nothing that can cause destruction. My friends, it is a glorious and beautiful picture. I wish, I, I was thinking we could almost do about four sermons on this one chapter this morning. My Christian friends, be in no doubt of the preciousness of your salvation. Through Christ, we have been saved from hell to heaven. And it is utterly glorious what we have in him. Never let go of Christ. And my friends here who are, who are not Christians. Jesus, I think, reflecting on this very passage, told the parable of a prodigal son. And what did the prodigal son say to his dad? I want all the good things you can give me, but I don't want you. Give me my inheritance now. And he gets as far away from his dad as he can. He goes off to a distant country and he squanders all his father's inheritance and blessing on wild living for himself until there's nothing left. And there he is, uh, this Jewish boy, so desperate, he takes a job feeding pigs. And then he thinks, what am I doing? His mind returns to his father. 
And he thinks of a speech of how he doesn't deserve to be a son and, you know, take me on as a servant. I'll, I'll work for you, Dad. Uh, but, you know, as he turns for home, what does he see as he comes up the drive? His father with his arms wide open. In the house there is food and drink and love and joy and acceptance and forgiveness. And all he had to do was turn for home. Will you come to Christ today? Will you turn for home? All day long, his arms are pleading. Come to Christ. There's heaven to gain, there's hell to flee from, but how glorious to be in relationship with the living God. Come to him today. If you need some help knowing what to do, come and speak to me. Uh, there's guys praying down the front. They're, they're, they'll gladly share with you. We'd love to help you. Don't let this day go past without responding to the amazing grace of God through Jesus. Let's pray.